I'll just tell you, I got the wonderful opportunity uh, to be at ORU at the same time that uh, Slav was there and that uh, Pastor Jimmy was serving as professor of missions. And uh, these are two spectacular guys. And um, I, they're going to tell us about their story tonight and about the vision the Lord's cast in them. And I just want to say thanks for coming. I know it's the night after we had a big Sunday night service. And, um, but, but those that are watching, thank you for watching. And those that are here tonight, Pastor Jimmy, come on up. Share your heart. Come on, give him a big... Trinity Cathedral New Life, welcome. Thank you, guys. You want me up here or down here? doesn't matter. You know what? I'm going to hide behind this thing. Is that okay? This is nice. I like this. And we are so glad to be able to be with you guys tonight. Um, it's a real privilege for us to be here. And so I'll tell you a little bit about our story, and, uh, and then Slav's going to come and share here in just a second also. But um, I reached out to, to Pastor Michael a few weeks ago, and, uh, and I said, hey, man, we're doing this crazy thing. We are driving. Slav is riding a motorcycle. I'm driving behind him. We're going all the way across the country um, from Boston all the way to San Francisco, and we're looking for places to just stop and share what God is doing and how God has brought us along this way. And uh, and, and it's been such a cool thing. I mean, we're only, this is day three, right? So we, I know, it's really sad because uh, we're, we're, we're doing, I think, 14 days, 15 days, and uh, this is day three, and we'd already lost time, track of what time it is and what day it is. So we started in Boston and went to Springfield, Massachusetts, and then uh, did some stuff on that night there, and then in Sunday morning service at, at Slav's parents' church, and then we moved on to Syracuse last night, and then we were in Pittsburgh at lunch today, and then here tonight, and then we start making our way back towards Oklahoma over the next couple of days, and so we're just really excited to be here, and, um, and it's a great opportunity for us. Um, I, I lead a ministry called Project Doxa, and uh, Doxa, D-O-X-A, is a Greek word. means glory, you know, and we uh, started the ministry some years ago. Uh, we started the vision for this um, uh, by, by like getting involved. What happened was we had all of these connections with people all over the world, and their needs and their desires and their visions for ministry were just too big for us to handle by ourselves. And so we started a ministry to help to kind of meet those needs. And I'm going to tell you a bit of my story um, and how we got involved. And, uh, and then I'm going to have Slav come up and share a bit. Slav is an interesting guy. He climbed Mount Everest last year, uh, which is an amazing thing. Uh, one of only 4,000 people, less than 4,000 people to ever stand on the summit of Everest. So he'll share a little bit of that story um, and, and why kind of we're here in, in the first place. But I just want to share from the scripture with you guys for just a second, if that's okay. Um, uh, I'm going to read from Luke chapter 5 in just a second. I'm going to talk about answering the call of God. Um, I love this story. It's a story about Peter, right? And the reason I love this story about Peter is I grew up with, <laughs> my father is a lot like Peter. You know, Peter's kind of a rough guy. He's a fisherman. Uh, fishermen in those days, in the Bible times, were uh, kind of rough and crass people. I don't know if you've ever been around some rough and crass people, okay? But that's who these guys were. And I kind of grew up with a guy like that as my father. And uh, he liked to fish. That was kind of his thing. Um, and throughout his whole life, like every house he's ever lived in, he's built. Every, like the food he eats, he most likely killed it. <laughs> that's, just, that's just where it is. I grew up in rural Oklahoma. I grew up in a town of 1,300 people. Uh, my Romanian friends called it a village, and they weren't wrong. <laughs> 
And, uh, but that's how I grew up. I grew up in this situation. And my, my dad was an interesting guy, man. He decided one time that he wanted to be a rabbit farmer, okay? And I don't know why he decided that, but he just did. And so we started building rabbit cages, and we had 200 rabbits in my backyard, all right, because we started with not so many, and then we had a lot, and he just kept building cages. And in the process of doing this, I don't mean to be graphic, but he accidentally shot himself with a staple gun and affixed himself to the cage. Okay? And I had to take a saw and saw him off of the cage, like the, the cage, and he took part of the cage with him to the hospital. You know, it was like that. He was a rough dude. That's the way he was. He just showed up at the hospital with a board stuck to his hand, you know? And, and, and he had a time where that he decided that the little guard on his radial saw was like getting in the way, so he just took it off. So he would just use the thing without the guard. And one day, it hit him right here on the leg, and he had some change in his pocket, fortunately, and a quarter stopped the blade. I still have the quarter, and it's a good thing because that was like pre-Jimmy. Do you understand? And if not for the quarter, probably I wouldn't be here. <laughs> and, uh, and so he was a rough a rough guy, okay? Do you guys understand what I'm talking about? And so he was, he was a fisherman, all right? He liked to fish. And in Oklahoma, I don't know how it is here in Ohio, but in Oklahoma, you have lots of different kinds of fishermen, okay? And some of the, like, country guys, what they'll do is they'll fish for, for crappie out of a little aluminum boat, and they'll, uh, they, they want nothing to do with the city guys who show up in the bass boats out on the lake. Like, they'll, they'll run those guys off. They're like, the rich guys show up on the weekends. We don't want anything to do with you. And one of the ways they, they would fish is they would do things they call trot lining, okay? Some of you guys maybe know what this is, but they would string a line across part of a lake between a couple of trees, and they would take uh, weights, and they would weigh the line down, and then every so often they would use a hook, and they would hook a perch onto there, and the, the line would go all the way to the bottom of the lake, and then they would come the next day, and they'd pull up the line, and they'd pull the catfish off the thing, and sometimes there'd be lots and lots of catfish. And what happened is, it's really dangerous to do it this way because if you get hooked by one of these things and you happen to end up in the water, you're going to the bottom of the lake. And so when I was a little kid, all right, I was taught to carry a pocket knife in my pocket because if I ever got hooked and went overboard, I needed to cut the line. And, and this was the kind of stuff I grew up around, all right? And so when I say this, I'm saying like, like when we look at people in the scripture, we sometimes think about them a certain way, um, but that's not really what happens. See, when God calls Peter, this is who he is. He's this rough guy who's got like scars on his knuckles from stupid fights. He's the guy who, who says stuff and you're like, oh, that's just Peter, okay? And yet, God sees something in Peter that even Peter doesn't see, okay? And, and Peter's story is so fascinating to me and how he answered the call. I just think it's really interesting. So I'm just gonna read some of this. This is Luke chapter five. And it says, so it was that the multitude pressed about him, Jesus, to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. Isn't this interesting? So, so the guys have been fishing all night long, right? And Jesus sees the boats. He comes over and he just gets in one and pushes out a little bit. And the guys are like, what's going on here? And he begins to give them a nice teaching, right? And then in verse 4, it says, When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. So can you imagine this? You're a person who's fished all night long and caught nothing. You're over here washing your nets, thinking at least 
I'm going to get a nap. It's time for rest. I've been up all night. No fish, nothing. And then Jesus comes and like commandeers your boat. And you're like, well, now I guess I get to listen to a sermon. Awesome. And after the sermon then, Jesus says to Peter, hey, let's go fishing. And Peter's response is brilliant, right? He's like, uh, master, we fished all night and caught nothing. Okay. And then he says, but nevertheless, I'll go do what you say. And it's kind of one of these moments. Like, I can imagine Peter saying it this way. Like, um, I fished, we fished all night. We didn't catch anything. And in his head, he's thinking, I'll take him out. We'll toss the nets over. We'll pull the nets back in. We'll go in. Done. 30 minutes, maybe an hour. No big deal. Not a problem. We'll just show him. You know, I mean, he gave the lecture, gave the talk. It's fine. And he says, but nevertheless, I'll go and do what you say, right? And you guys know what's going to happen here. This is a crazy story. Um, okay, in verse 7, or verse, verse 6, it says, And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat that came to help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Isn't this an interesting thing? He says, they went out, they tossed the nets over. Peter's thinking, toss them out, grab them back, let's go back in. We fished all night, and they're like, hey, I think there's a lot of fish in here. So they called the buddies over in the other boat, and they have so many fish that it almost sinks two boats. You can imagine this, okay? And Peter has this moment there where he realizes, like, oh, no, this is not normal. This is not a normal thing that is happening here. And it says he turns, and he doesn't do what we might think. He doesn't, like, celebrate. He doesn't, like, worship. What does he do? He says he falls on his knees, and he says to Jesus, depart from me. Go away. I'm a sinful man, oh, Lord. Isn't that an interesting thing to say? What he's saying, let me translate it for you, right? He's saying, I don't know who you're looking for, but it's not me. Right? I don't know which guy you came to find, but it's not me. I'm just a fisherman. Right? Like, I I understand you're interrupting my life, but I just came to fish, you know? Um, It's so interesting how many times that we, 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 like, have this same response when the Lord begins to call us. And rather than answer the call, we say like, oh, oh no, Lord, I don't know who you're looking for, but it's not me. And that was exactly my experience, okay? So when I was a kid and I was growing up, um, I had this like encounter with the Lord. My grandparents brought me to a church. I grew up in a church with 16 old people, all right, and me and my brother. My parents were alcoholics till I was a teenager. Hmm? I am more than comfortable. You have no idea. So many of those folks are not even living anymore, okay? Like they, they were old then. They're like beyond that now. And so um, it, it's because uh, I'm getting a, a certain age, right? But I grew up in this church. I never met a Christian within a year of my age till I went to college. I turned out I had some in my hometown, but they were undercover. I found out later. <laughs> And, uh, and so like, this was my experience. And so I was brought to church with these old people and it was really tough for me and I didn't understand what was going on and why they keep bringing me to church and why every time that I talk to them, they're talking about all oh, the Bible and all this stuff. And I just didn't understand that whole situation, you know? And, uh, but I got like one-on-one attention in my Sunday school class. <laughs> it was like me and the teacher. So I learned the Bible really well. Even before I was like a faithful follower of Jesus, I knew the Bible. And a church got together and they had a church camp and they invited me to come as their Bible trivia ringer, right? Like because they had these Bible trivia contests and they know this dude knows the Bible. We'll bring him along, you know? And so I end up at this church camp and I had an encounter with the Lord. And the Lord began to speak to me. Um, and the Lord told me to go to school at ORU. 
um, to study the Bible and not play baseball anymore. I was a pretty good baseball player back in the day, and, uh, and I had some plenty of college offers and some other stuff, and I was accepted into the Air Force Academy and the Naval Academy in West Point. Um, I was a valedictorian at my high school. That was my plan, and, uh, and I felt like the Lord told me to go to school at ORU, and so I said, all right. And there was a cafeteria lady there at this church camp, and she's praying for me, and she says, young man, you know what you're supposed to do, don't you? And I said, yes. And you know where you're supposed to go, don't you? And I said, yes. And I showed up at ORU in Tulsa. I had never been on the campus before. I showed up as a student, as a freshman, and there were people who were there for all kinds of different reasons. But for me, I just knew God called me, and I showed up. And during my first semester there on campus, uh, they told us we were going to have a chapel service about missions. And I thought, this is crazy. We're going to have like an old guy with a slideshow. It's going to be amazing, like at my church where I grew up, you know. And they said, no, we're going to tell you about where you can go and serve the Lord overseas. And I said, I don't understand what you mean. And they said, no, we send teams. And they go to other countries. And I was like, I don't understand how this happens. What does this mean? At that moment in my life, right, I had never been on an airplane longer than from Tulsa to Houston to visit my grandmother. All right. I had never even seen a $100 bill. I never touched one physically. Right. My, my parents gave me $20 every two weeks which was $10 for gas to get back and forth and $10 for a haircut. So I shaved my head and thought I was rich. Okay? And so I showed up at this chapel service, and they said, here's where we're sending teams. And I said, that's it. I'm doing it. I'm going to do this. Right? I'm like the least likely person to go. I'm like the son of a telephone repairman from rural Oklahoma, from an Indian reservation. You know? And I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go. And so I showed up for this first meeting, and they, have, they call it a big team meeting, right? They, all these people, they're here, and they're all signing up, and it's really exciting. And they go, like, the whole thing before they tell you how much it costs. And then, like, right at the very end, they say, and now it's a cheap number, but this is just tells you how old I am. They said, yeah, it costs $2,500. And I said, $2,500? Where am I getting $2,500? And they said, no, God will provide. And I was like, How? I had no framework, no concept. I was like, I don't know, Lord, this is not for me, you know. And I signed up anyway, and I went through the process, and they, they tell you to send out letters and tell people about your trip and do all this stuff, and that God will provide. And you know what happened? The day before the 50% deadline that I needed 50% of my money, I had $0. Now, at ORU, they give you $1 to start. It's like the seed, you know, like everybody gets a dollar. In those days, 0 and, uh, and I went to a team meeting the night before the deadline, and I told my team leader, I said, hey, man, I've really enjoyed being here. This has been really fun for me, um, but uh, I, I, don't, I don't think this is for me, you know. I don't have any money. And he said, why don't you just stick it out? You know, maybe, maybe we'll see what happens. And so I said, all right, fine. So I stick it out, and one lady who didn't have very much money called me and asked me how much money I needed to my deadline, and I told her, all of it. <laughs> Like, I need half the money tomorrow. And she wrote me a check for half the money. I only got four donations, all right? And that paid for my first trip. And that was May of 99, right? I should have mentioned where I went. I was training to go to Curacao and Aruba. I got placed on this team to go to the South Caribbean. And that's part of why it was hard to raise money. It's a little bit like saying, God's called me to Honolulu. <laughs> and they say, people would say, if I'm going to send somebody there, it's not going to be you, right? <laughs> and... Uh, but I, I went on that first trip. That was May of 99. I remember saying to the Lord, Lord, if you open the door, the door I'll go. Um, that was more than 120 trips ago, more than 50 countries ago. Um, I just kept going. The Lord opened doors and we just went. 
you know, and just kept going and just kept going. But I remember this moment in the life of Peter where he said, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And I remember that moment for me when the Lord began to call me and I said, Lord, I don't know who you're looking for, but it's not me. But here's what you find out, right? Some things about these passages I think are really interesting. The first thing is this, right? Um, <laughs> when you look in the mirror, you don't see all that's there. You don't see everything like Jesus sees everything, right? Jesus spent his, or Peter spent his life mending nets. He doesn't know that he's one day going to be saying, that Jesus is going to say to him, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. That he'll leave everything and follow him. And when he leaves, he has no idea what's in store. He just knows he's leaving. He's going to take a big step. Now, we know the end of Peter's story, right? We know that he's going to one day walk on the water and one day preach a sermon where 3,000 people come to know the Lord and one day write some passages we will read as scripture and also like chop off some guy's ear and also deny the Lord and have some ups and downs. But in the moment he gets called, all he knows is Jesus has interrupted my life and he goes on this great adventure with the Lord. And I think that's such a powerful thing for us because um, so many times in the scripture we find these people that God calls, we find the end of their story. We read the end of the story. We know who they will become, but in the moment, no one sees it, right? And, and David is one of those prime examples, right? When Samuel is called by the Lord to go to Jesse's house to anoint the next king because Saul has failed, and he goes there and he says, Jesse, one of your sons will be king. And he says, where are your sons? And they bring him one after the other. And he's like, not this one. Where's the next one? And not this one. It's not this one. And, and where's the next one? And he's like, hey, did you run out of sons? And Jesse says, I mean, there's the youngest. I mean, he's out there with the sheep, right? <laughs> you know, even his own father doesn't see it. And they bring in David. And Samuel says this powerful thing. He says, God doesn't see like man sees. Right? Man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. And God saw something in David that was different. And this is the way that it is so many times. Um, and in my life, it was that way. I just felt like God had called me, even though I just, no one saw it at the time. I didn't even see it at the time. And I just said, all right, Lord, I'll just go. I'm willing. Wherever you want me to go, I'll go. And the Lord started opening doors to all over the place. And one of the places that the Lord opened the door for was to Nepal. Okay. Um, when I went on that first trip to Curacao, the night before we went, we had a commissioning service. We were praying, and I began to feel like the Lord was speaking to me about the country of Nepal. And I wasn't, like, real tuned in to hear the voice of the Lord, and I didn't know really what was going on. And I thought, why am I thinking about Nepal? I'm going to the Caribbean tomorrow. Why am I thinking about this? And I couldn't shake it, and I didn't know why. And I just kind of filed it away. And so two years later, I was on the staff of our missions department at the university, and uh, we had a team that was going to Nepal, and I was slated to go and visit them. And I thought, that's why. The Lord just put it on my heart. So I would know a couple years later I'd be ready to go. And, and right before we were supposed to go, a week and a half before we were supposed to go, the contact for our team in Nepal, he fell into a river and he drowned with our team in Nepal. So now they have no contact. And then there was like a mass tragedy that happened with the royal family in Nepal, and the country shut down. And so my trip got canceled. And I thought, but Lord, you spoke to me about this place. And we got the team out. Everything was fine after the fact. And I thought, but this was a place I was supposed to go. But it didn't happen. And a couple years later, I thought, I'm going to try to go to Nepal again. And some things just fell through. And I just kind of filed it away. So some years after that, an Indian brother called my pastor in Oklahoma. My pastor, who at the time had never been on an airplane, Okay, from the small town where I'm from, grew up in the same place. He was like a former drug dealer in town, and God just, like, saved him, and everybody came to come and check it out because, like, hey, we used to buy weed from that guy, and now he's the pastor. 
you know, and, and God was using him. He's an amazing guy, my, my, a good friend of mine. And this, this Indian brother called him and he said, hey, I, I want you to, to come with me to India. And my pastor's like, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to India. You need to talk to my missions guy. And he gave him my phone number and the guy called me and he said, hey, I want you to come to India. And I said, look, man, I don't have any interest to go to India. He said, no, but you got to come. We're going we're gonna to do this great work. And I said, no, I'm sorry. I, I just don't really, India's not really a place I really want to go. And he said, well, if you come to my house, I'll make you dinner. And I thought, now that I'm into. <laughs> Free food I can do. And so I went to the guy's house, and he had this big, like, like as big as one of these things here, maps of India on the wall. And he started talking to me. We had this really great food, and he started talking about all this work they were doing in the West. And it was really great. And he said, we're doing this work in the south of India. It's really fantastic. And, you know, he's just telling me the story. And I'm like, this is great, man. Good for you. But I'm not at all committing to any of this. And then he said, and now we're trying to open up this work right on the border of Nepal. And I said, where? He said, right on the border of Nepal. I said, like, on the border of Nepal. He said, yeah. I said, I'm in. I'm going. Let's go. Um, and so I signed up with these guys, and I said, I'll come with you. And that was 2005. Um, so when the Lord began to speak to me, it was 1999. So 2005, I went to India, and I was there right on the border. And then I went back later in 2005, and I told my, my guy here on the ground, I said, I need you to take me into Nepal, right? I said, we went one night into a United Nations refugee camp right on the other side of the border. And I just prayed, and I preached in this church. I said, Lord, I don't know why you brought me to this place, why it's on my heart, but I, I'm listening, you know, and then I left. I thought I was going to go back soon, and, I, and it, trips just kept getting canceled. We planned to go back into Nepal, and it just didn't work. And we had another time where I came to India, and we had a plan to go to Nepal, and, and the government shut down the border. We couldn't go in. And I had another time. I booked a ticket to go to Nepal, and I ended up having to have an appendectomy, and the trip got canceled. And so this kept going and on and on. And I was like, why this place, man? And then in 2015... I talked to a friend of mine who was doing some mass crusades in Nepal, and I said, I want in. I know you're going. I'm, I've been trying to go for a decade. I, I'm in. I want to come. Um, and so we made plans to do that in the fall of 2015. And in April of 2015, there was a massive earthquake in Kathmandu and north of there. And, and many thousands of people were killed, and hundreds of thousands of people were displaced. And I said, that's it. We're going to go. We're going to go now. And so we raised 40 grand to go and start rebuilding villages in Nepal. And so we rebuilt whole villages. Um, and I was on the ground 20 days after the earthquake. There were still aftershocks happening. We would stay, we stayed in the top floor of this hotel. It was four stories. And we stayed in the top floor in case the building fell, we'd be on top of it, not under it. And whenever the earthquakes would come in the night and they came like every other night, the, the bed would start to shake across the ground and we'd run outside on the roof. <laughs> And everybody in Nepal was sleeping outside because no one trusted going inside the building because, like, the buildings were all falling down. And we were there helping to rebuild. And, and so we started just going and investing and going and investing in this place. And the Lord started opening doors all over the place. And what happened was I was in a prayer meeting in 2016. I'd been there seven times since then. I was in a prayer meeting in this moment, and I was sitting there, and as we were praying, um, the Lord took me back to that moment in 1999. And I had even forgotten about it. And it was like I was right back there again. And it was something that had been started so long ago that God had called and then put us in this place and given us these connections there right on the border of India and Nepal. And it's become a place that's so special to my heart. Um, 
and, and all of that because like just trying to answer the call. And I think this is such a powerful thing. I share this story because what we're doing right now is we're trying to help some of these guys right on the border. And Slav's going to tell you a little bit about that in a minute as well. Um, but it was such a crazy thing. When I look back at the life of Peter and how he just takes off and leaves, what you find is like people of faith deal in the currency of like opportunity, not guarantees. And it requires this measure of, of courage in the face of their fears to, to just do this. And you guys will appreciate this story. This is kind of a funny thing, but people here will understand. Um, like some people vacation to go see like mountains. Some people go to the beach. My family, we are a roller coaster people, okay? And you people understand this, I know. Because my family, we make like annual pilgrimages to Cedar Point, okay? And when my, my daughter was really young, she was six years old, but my kids are really big. She was tall enough to ride all the rides. But she thought because she's six, she won't be tall enough and she'd be like off the hook and not have to ride any of the big roller coasters. And what happened was she got there and she got in the line and it turned out she was just tall enough and then she started to freak out. Because now she knows like, oh no, I don't want to do this. So she says to me, daddy, I don't want to do this. I don't want to ride this. And I said, babe, it's okay to be afraid. We're going to ask you to do it anyway. This is what we tell all of our mission students when we're training them. It's okay to be afraid, but we want you to do it anyway. And, and so what happened was she was terrified. She got in the line. We're going through the line. And in the beginning, it's just like mild panic, okay? And as we get closer to the front of the line, she starts to yell, okay? Like kind of making a scene. I'm not doing this, okay? You, you can do it, babe. It's okay. And we just keep going, you know? And everybody else around us, she's for sure the youngest person riding the ride, okay? She's six years old. And, and we're getting all the way to the very front of the line. She's like, I'm not going to do it. I said, it's okay to be afraid. You're going to do it anyway. And so we get in, and they strap us in, and we start up the hill, okay, of the Millennium Force, right? You guys know the ride. And so we, so we start up the hill. See, you people understand me. I know. And so we start up the hill, like take off, and she begins to scream, you guys. Like she begins to scream. Like everyone in the park can hear her screaming, wailing as we're going up to the top of the thing. All right, but we go over the first hill. She's still screaming, but she's grabbed my hand. She's got it so tight. She starts screaming, I'm so scared. This is so awesome. <laughs> because what happens is, see, like, it's okay to be afraid, but you got to do it anyway, right? And so when Peter leaves his nets, this is exactly what happens, right? He's afraid, doesn't know, and Jesus says, him, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Peter has no idea what's coming, but he just follows. And the Lord kind of brings people through this whole kind of thing. And I just think it's such a fascinating thing because we don't get any guarantee, you know? No guarantee of safety, no guarantee that it will work out quite like we want, no, no idea even what tomorrow holds. We just know that the Lord has called. And this is what I think is such a powerful metaphor, right? Because my daughter is here trusting that her father won't take her somewhere that she can't go and finally enjoying the ride. You know, crazy ride, but the ride, you know. Right now, if you ask my daughter, my, either of my daughters, my son, where's their, like, favorite place? It's in Ohio. <laughs> okay? And they love coming up here because that's their thing, you know. They love to ride the roller coasters. And I really just appreciate that. And, and so when God calls us to do stuff, sometimes we end up in the craziest places, things we would never think that we would do. 
And so after answering the call and going on these trips and traveling all over the place, the Lord began to speak to me about planting a church. And I thought, okay, Lord, I'm willing. Where will you send me? And so I got in a car and I drove all the way to the East Coast because I thought maybe out here, and I drove to Baltimore. I thought maybe Baltimore. And then I drove north and I went to Boston. I thought maybe here. And I went all over the country just in different places saying, Lord, is this the place? Is this the place? And the Lord began to speak to me about planting a church in Tulsa. And I said, oh, Lord, please no. I mean, seriously, I said, I, I remember telling the Lord, like, I don't want to pastor a church of disgruntled ORU students, <laughs> you know, but the Lord asks you to do things, and, and the question is, like, not, like, do you want to, do, it's, it's obedience or disobedience, will you answer the call, or will you not answer the call, and so we started in my living room, we started inviting people over to my living room, and it was really rough in the beginning, no one would come, you know, and it was really tough. And, uh, and I began to wonder, like, how will we pay the bills? And after a while, we didn't pay the bills. And then they just shut off my power, okay? At the end of 2007, we had an ice storm in Tulsa. And everybody's power went out. But mine had already been out. <laughs> and, uh, and after a while, I sent my wife and the kids, you know, I had to humble myself. I sent them to the in-laws in Texas. And I said, we're going to wait it out. We're going to see what the Lord will do. And I got money and I paid the bills after a while. But before I did, the power came back on in other places. People called me and they said, hey, is the power back on at your house? I was like, I don't know if it is or not. Because <laughs> it's not on at my house. It's, you know, I was like in a t sleeping bag in the middle of the living room. And, uh, and, and we got the power back on and we brought everybody back. And it was still that winter. And, and I had this like prompting from the Lord and I didn't understand it. And I felt like the Lord told me to go on a hike. And I thought, I don't understand this at all. So I told my wife, I said, hey, babe, I'm going to go hiking. She's like, where? I was like, I'm going to take a couple hours. I'm going to go down to the Washita's little hills down where we have. It's a couple hours away, and I'm going to go on a hike. I feel like the Lord's told me to go on a hike. It was 20 degrees during the daytime. And I thought, I'm going to go on a hike. And so what happened is I drove down there in the morning, and I started hiking out into the woods on this trail. And I was out there all by myself, and about middle of the afternoon, I realized, like, the sun's about to set. I'm going to freeze to death. And so I had a machete, and I chopped down some trees, and I started a fire, and I kept the fire going for 14 hours through the night. And the whole time through the night, I thought, this is the longest, coldest, darkest night of my life. They're going to find me out in the middle of the wilderness, dead, frozen to death, because I'm stupid. You know? Nobody made me do this. I just did it. And I thought, they're going to find me out here. And when the sun started to rise, I was so ecstatic. I can't even tell you. You know, I don't know how cold it got during the nighttime, but it was 20 during the day. And I got all my stuff. I packed it up, and I started back up over this hill. And there's a road, a little windy road through here. And I was wearing a red and black and white camo shirt. I don't know where I would be camouflaged, but that's what I was wearing, okay? <laughs> and this guy sees me. He's in his truck. He pulls up to me, and he goes, what are you doing? I said, man, I'm just out for a walk, you know? And he said, you want to ride? And I was like, yes, desperately, I want to ride. And I got in the car with him, and one minute into the car ride, he said, he said, man, you know, my life is so jacked up, you know. You think you can, like, pray for me or tell me something? And we went to a place not far from there in this little town, outside this little town in Oklahoma, rural Oklahoma, and there's a spot on the side of the road, and there's a little sign. I kid you not, guys, I'm not making this up. It says, Outdoor Air Prayer Place. So we stop there, and we get out, and there's like a little, like a plexiglass little room, twice the size maybe of your drum cage, 
And inside of there, there's little like G.I. Joe figurines posed in Bible stories and a little sign that says Bible Museum. There's just dust over everything. And then there's like, like a sidewalk going around a little circle and a little hill with three crosses and like a fake empty tomb over here. And then on the sidewalk, each little segment of the sidewalk has a different book of the Bible written on it. And I just walked the guy around and we knelt down right out in the middle of this field with the wind blowing. And we prayed a prayer I can't repeat because he was pretty graphic about his prayer. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and he just knelt down and cried into the kingdom. And in that moment, I forgot about the long night. I forgot about being cold. I forgot about the whole thing. I just knew that God had called me. And I went back home, and at that time, we were still meeting in my living room, and I was like, how are we going to even survive this? And I went to this businessmen's meeting on a breakfast meeting, and these guys said, hey, does anybody have anything they want to share? And I said, yeah, I do. And I tell them this story, and they said, by the way, how's your church going? I was like, really bad. We need a place to meet. And this guy says, well, I own this building over here. Do you want to rent from us? And I was like, look, man, I have no money. He said, well, how about this? I'll charge you per person. It charge, I'll charge you $2 per person for everybody who comes on a Sunday. I was like, so if I get 30 people, I owe you 60 bucks, you win. That's it. We're in. <laughs> and I showed up at this place, and that's how we started our church. You know, And people came, and it was crazy. Um, and God began to open doors. And one of the other guys at that business luncheon, he said to me, he said, we want to invest in your church. We want to help you guys survive. How much money do you need? And I said, honestly, I need 25 grand. You know, we've been just like hanging on. We don't have anything in this stuff. And he said, okay, we'll do it. And they opened the door for us to be able to do these things. And, and the reason I share this story, I mean, it's a crazy story, but I share it for this reason, right? Sometimes God calls you to do something that just seems so crazy, right? And when Peter is sitting here and he throws out the nets, he's like, I already fished all night. I didn't catch anything. He throws out the nets. And the next thing you know, he's about to sink his boat. And then he just says, all right, Lord, you win. I'll follow you. I don't know where we're going, but I'll follow you. And even later on when he has this moment and Jesus says something really, really hard and a bunch of people leave, he, Jesus turns to the disciples and says, what about you guys? Will you guys leave? And Peter says something so classic. He says, where else would I go? You alone have the words of life. I left the nets, man. I'm out here. I don't know what, what it is. And so in some, some way, God calls us to do these crazy things sometimes that make no sense, even sometimes to the people who are answering the call. And this is a lead-in for me, okay, because I want Slav to come and talk to you about climbing Mount Everest. But mostly I want him to come and talk to you about it because what happens is God calls the guy to go and do something that even people around are like, why would you do that? That's ridiculous. And I think everybody knows a little bit about Mount Everest, but not everybody knows, like, really what that's about, okay? Uh, Mount Everest is the most inhospitable place on the planet. The summit is accessible less than 10 days, usually, each year, okay? Less than 4,000 people have ever been on top of the mountain, okay? It's roughly equivalent to cruising altitude of a jet. That's how high the elevation is. Okay. The Rocky Mountains, if you've been there, are 14-ish thousand feet, some almost 15. The tallest mountain in the continental United States is Mount Whitney, and it's not 15, and Mount Everest is 29. Okay. And so Slav, he, he climbed to the top of Mount Everest. We're going to show you a quick video here in just a second, and it's just a few minutes, and it's a really cool video in part because there's no music, there's nobody talking. It's just video of one of Slav's friends climbing to the top of the summit. This isn't his group, but it's a group like them, and, and it gives you a sense of like what it's like there, and we're going to watch that, and then Slav's going to come. 
to try it, Mo and Topka and I might be able to climb past you. I can go over this way. Yeah, give yourself like, like lay your sender down about one more foot step left. And we can climb right past you, you'll get the shot you want. So this video clip is four minutes long. This whole experience, the summit experience, was eight hours long for me, with a four-hour descent. So you're going to see four minutes of this. And if you can imagine four or five breaths for every step, um, that's known as the Hillary step, this, this rocky outcrop. And then this is uh, the summit. Church. Very excited to be here with you all this evening. Thank you for coming and uh, I'd like to share my testimony with you all. And uh, the point of this whole thing is to give God glory because he gave the grace, he gave the weather. We had a perfect weather window. Lots of people prayed or you community prayed and supported. And this is just an opportunity to say thank you Lord for, for being there, for helping me conquer fear, doubt, and mostly myself. We don't really conquer mountains. Um, the mountain has the last say, as does God, you know, it's his word. Um, so this photo is a photo of myself and my Sherpa Thukten on the summit of Mount Everest with the ORU banner. I graduated ORU in 2010. It's one of the organizations that most influenced my life along with my home church. So I took my church banner and the ORU banner to the summit. Um, and I wanted to give back to ORU, and so that's why I did this. And I think we have a few ORU alumni in the house um, who can really relate to the mandate um, that God gave Oral Roberts. Raise up your students to hear my voice, to go where my light is dim, where my voice is heard small and my healing power is not known. Even to the uttermost bounds of the earth, their work will exceed yours, and in this I am well pleased. And I'm just grateful to God that he's given me the opportunity to, to climb. And, you know, we've all been given gifts and talents and abilities. It's just my expression of, of worship to God through the abilities he has given me. And I, I see this as stewardship when it comes to my story. You know, we've all been given gifts and we've all been given talents, whatever they are, um, whether it's in the arts, um, wh wherever it is. Um, I'm not a preacher. I'm an engineer by training. 
I'm an engineering manager in the Middle East. I work in Dubai. Um, I've lived in the Middle East for five years now. And I uh, just wanted to share a little bit of my story. I grew up in the church. I'm a PK and uh, went, went to ORU. And, and even going to ORU, it's entire testimony of God interrupting my life, similar to Peter. Um, I was going to a state university doing my own thing. It was the number seven party school in the nation, University of Massachusetts Amherst. And God spoke to me to come to ORU. And after four years, those who have been perhaps have seen towards the last couple of years, people kind of get a little burnt out, a little fed up. And similarly as myself, I, I went into engineering and um, in a way kind of left the church. I, I moved to the Middle East. And I had an interrupting moment um, that now I, I see, you know, Jimmy, after sharing that story, I, I relate to it so much. Um, I was living with a pretty crazy roommate who was traveling all over the world. He was in 81 countries. And at that point, I had done several missions trips, but I hadn't been to many of the same places he had been. And I was inspired to go to Everest Base Camp. And I, I don't know why. It just came to me. And I went to Everest Base Camp. It's an eight-day eight trek. Um, and I saw Mount Everest. And to me, it was such a moment of inspiration when I saw how massive and how majestic it was. I, I had a really emotional experience. And now in hindsight, I think it was God calling me. And it's really interesting. I don't know, those of you who have climbed that, maybe you've seen that when you're closer to heaven or maybe in a flight, you really can connect with God. And I think the song that we sang today um, as well, God chasing us into the mountains. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. And in a way, perhaps that was Everest for me. Encountering God up there. You know, there's, there's nothing like facing, you know, the reality of death. There's even, I mean, Mount Everest has an area known as the death zone above 8,000 meters around, around 27,000 feet. And lots of people have died there. And when you're confronted with fear and death head on, you really start thinking about what, what does my life mean? What, does, what do I want my life to stand for? And I told you guys a little bit about stewardship and, and why. Um, Everest became an expression of of stewardship for me, especially when I saw people who were physically handicapped or disabled that weren't able to do this. I felt like for me, with the ability to do this, uh, it would be just wrong not to. Um, just to tell you a little bit, Everest took two months to climb, 56 days. And before that, two, other, two years of preparation of climbing, you know, progressively taller and taller peaks. Um, and so all of this, I just kind of want to bring it to a point I can, I can talk about the climb in, in details and how difficult it was and cold and miserable, all these things. Two, two months of pain, guys. That's the best way I can put it. Um, so, and, and, and really, it, it's, it's, just, it's just tough. It's difficult to sleep. It's difficult to eat. It, it's cold. It's, you know, you're, you're waking up and just ice all over you. I mean, bathroom challenge is a whole different ball game. We, <laughs> I don't want to talk about that from a church stage. Um, it's just, it, the whole thing is, is just tough, you know, but it's completely changed my life, this, this, this whole thing. Um, and as I was climbing, 
climbing Everest and going through the Khumbu Valley and seeing Sir Edmund Hillary is the first person to summit Everest, and it was in 1953. And I saw all the infrastructure that he had put up, hospitals and schools and transportation hubs. And it occurred to me, why, why could it not be me? You know? And of course, after I summited, you know, the belief that nothing is impossible and I could do the same thing. Um, and I had it on my mind and on my heart that I really want to give back to Nepal. Um, and over, over the years, it's been, you know, becoming more close to the gospel. And uh, Jimmy and I got connected. Jimmy and I went to ORU together, and we got connected on the intramural fields, playing volleyball and football and all this stuff. And so I reached out to Jimmy, and he's like, yeah, we've got all sorts of projects. Um, and so he told me about the school that um, he's been supporting over the last decade. And maybe, maybe you can come up and share more detail. Um, and I was like, yeah, that'd be really cool. And so I've been doing a little bit of uh, motivational speaking and, and traveling and sharing lessons I've learned through, from the mountain. I was like, well, what if we did a couple of fundraising events um, in different places? And we, we thought, okay, Reno and Tulsa and one other place in California. I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. But then I thought about it, like taking flights, you know, wasn't as interesting. So I was like, what if I rode a motorcycle across the country and we did this thing? Um, and... We flew to India two weeks ago, and we got to see the kids. And I was just so touched um, just by going there. Um, Jimmy, maybe, maybe you can share, share more about what we're doing and, and why. And, um. yeah. so, so what happened was, uh, when I went in 2005, and the brother who translated for me uh, while I was there, he has an incredible testimony. And so his story is just amazing. When he was uh, very young, as an infant, young like these guys here, his mother committed suicide. Um, she took poison while nursing him, right? And he was found on her body. He detached from her, fortunately. She was trying to kill them both. He's never even seen a picture of his mother. And his father, who's a high caste Hindu, remarried and married a lady who was cruel to him. And it was rough. And that's not atypical for some of the guys in this part of the world. But he uh, got cancer in his nose that spread to his brain. And uh, the doctors told him, listen, man, you're going to die soon. You need to go home. And they sent him home. And uh, he was waiting there just to die. And a young Christian girl came singing a song about Jesus. He said, Jesus is your father. Jesus is your mother. Come to him. He will give you life. And he said, who is this Jesus? And she said, we, we will tell you about him. Come, we're having a meeting. We pray for the sick. And he said, yeah, but I'm a Hindu. And they said, yeah, but you're going to die. And he showed up. They brought him there. The family brought him and God healed him. A dramatic healing. And he goes then and begins to proclaim about Jesus all the time, everywhere. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But his father's a high caste Hindu priest, right? And so they bring priests to try to force him to reconvert to Hinduism and so he jumped out of the window of the shower and ran away, right? He got on the back of a truck. It took him to a village, some, a city a couple of, of, of towns away. And he got down, and he's like, what will I do now? And a guy came by and said, hey, are you not the brother that was healed in that crusade? He said, I am. And it was the same family from the evangelist who had healed, the, who brought the, the message that night. And they took him in, and they taught him the Bible. And when I met him in 2005, he was translating for me. And he says, hey, brother, I want, to, uh, I, want to, I want to buy some land and start a Bible school. And I said, that's fantastic. He's like, I need you to help me buy the land. <laughs> and I said, hey, man, I pastor a church of 20-year-olds. 
<laughs> I don't know what you think I can do. I'm not the guy who buys land in India, you know. And, uh, and I asked him, how much will it cost? And he says, it's like uh, so many lakhs rupees, which is like 150,000 rupees. I, was, I don't understand what that means. How much is that? And he said, like $1,500. I said, we can buy land in India for $1,500? He said, yeah. And I said, we'll do it. And I went back to the church, and even at that moment, that was a stretch for our church. And I went to the guys, and I said, you know, I had like 65 college-age people. And I was like, we're going to do this. And people gave, and we bought the land. And then a little bit later, oh, yeah, there's the land here. So the, we bought this piece of land, two pieces of land here, like adjacent to each other. And they started a Bible school, and they began to reach all kinds of people. It's an incredible, incredible testimony. But what happened in the process of that was the kids in this village, in the place where they are, um, they, they didn't have any access to school. This is in a deeply impoverished place, right? Less than a dollar a day wages for people. And so if they don't have school, from the time they can walk and carry tea bags, they will send them into the tea fields and they will work instead of go to school. And so Sanjeev, our guy, he said, we want to start a school for them. And it was fine in the beginning because it was just him and they started a kindergarten. It's like 20 kids. And they put them in a really small place. But each year they kept adding space and adding another class. So now there's a kindergarten and a first grade. And now a kindergarten, a first grade, and a second grade. And this goes on and on and on until there's 250 kids and no infrastructure really to help them. And this is kind of an interesting thing. I know we've talked a lot about ORU, but when I was on the faculty at ORU, I was in a meeting with Dr. Rutland, the former president, and he said, he and I were talking, and he said, you know, I'm thinking about doing this thing where we start to take an offering in the chapel services and invest it in a missions project. Do you think that would work? Can we get projects? And I said, yeah, it'll work. I got lots of projects. And the very first chapel offering project was to put a roof on the building here in India. Uh, for these Nepali guys. And so now the school there has 250 kids, um, but they don't have space. And the teachers who are teaching them are traveling. They've come and they live there. They live in the classrooms. Um, and then they vacate the classroom and they teach in the classroom. And then they come back in and sleep there at night. They haven't been paid in years. They just did it. And Sanji Bargai is saying, hey, brother, we need help. We need to build some stuff. We need to pay these people. We need to do this. We won't be able to keep the school going. And I told him, I said, look, man, we're just two years into our ministry. I'm really trying to do stuff. I don't know how we can take this thing on because um, we're raising money for our ministry. I said, I just, I just don't know. And so when Slav says, hey, I want to help, I think I want to find a project to help to give back to Nepalis. And I said, man, we, we got to do this. So he and I traveled to India a couple weeks ago so he could see this, and then I'll let him share a little bit. And we have a little video of these kids. They did a presentation. So these guys are all from Hindu families, and they're all being taught English. They're all being taught the Bible. They're all being, you know, taught these things. And the Hindu families know, and they give cover for the school because these kids would not have schooling otherwise. So the only opportunity that they have, the only clean clothes they have is their school uniform. The only opportunity they have for education is through what we're doing here, and it's amazing. So we're going to try to raise, like, just the big picture thing. We, we came because we want to encourage people. We want to challenge people to get involved in all kinds of different stuff, but also we're raising funds. And so no pressure for anybody, but that's what we're doing. And we're trying to raise, like, 50 grand, which is, like, a super ambitious goal for us over the next two weeks. But that will build 14 classrooms, right? And it will pay the teachers for a full year. It'll subsidize the whole school for a whole year, 50 grand. It's crazy. And so, anyway, so that's, yeah, here you go. So when I came there, and um, w one of the things I, I, I missed to share is that um, the amount of 
you know, the, the tough things that the Sherpas do, yeah? So you typically see the, the climbers, the Westerners who, who reach the top, but sometimes it's not mentioned who gets them there. There's always a Sherpa ahead or helping or supporting. So this is a Nepali Sherpa going ahead of me. And, and, and that's one of the reasons is, is I wouldn't have made it. And a lot of people wouldn't have made it if not for these guys. So one thing, when we came to the school, they put on a program and the kids sang for us, which completely melted my heart. because no one in that area speaks English. That's a little bit about us and, and what we're doing and, and why we're doing it. Uh, we're calling it Ride for Nepal. Um, riding, like we said, from Boston to San Francisco and, and hanging out with people and sharing stories and, and, and talking about, you know, dreams and calling and in what ways is God interrupting each one of us in, in, in what ways. For me, um, we all have our challenges, you know, our nets that we have to leave and, you know, go and follow Christ. For me, it, it was it was Mount Everest, and now another challenge, which is to is missions and reaching out to these kids and supporting these kids and doing my part and whatever I can. Um, but also just to encourage you guys, you know, um, leaving something behind that you're used to and following God is, is is really challenging. And I never thought, for me, it would be with something like Mount Everest and climbing. It's it's the craziest outside wild idea, and I never thought it was going to be me. But it's been awesome. It's opened a lot of opportunities to go into schools and universities and churches, and particularly with, with uh, secular schools, not even Christian schools, going in and being able to share a testimony. Um, that's all I have. We're really excited to be here, really excited to hang out with you guys. Jimmy, you said you wanted to, to pray at the end, yeah? Thank you guys for having us and for listening. We appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a big, fun adventure for us. We're just in the very beginning, so we would really appreciate your prayers over the next two weeks uh, for good weather, for the guy on the motorcycle. And, uh, and, and, you know, for us, it was just a big step of saying, all right, we're going to take a big step. We're going to trust that the Lord's going to use this. And it's been really cool, man. Already in the first three days, not only have we raised money, we've done that, but even in addition to that, we've met some really incredible people. We've got to encourage a lot of people and really challenge them. We've had a few people sign up for some of our mission trips, which I did not anticipate, um, but lots of really awesome stuff. And, uh, and we're just so grateful for the opportunity to come and hang out with you guys tonight and, and to fellowship. So I'm just going to pray, and then we'll hand it back to you guys. Is that okay? Uh, Father, thank you so much. Uh, for this opportunity tonight. Thank you for um, what an incredible place um, to come and to worship. And such passionate worship is such an exciting thing um, to participate in. And Lord, we're so grateful that we get to fellowship um, in this way. And God, I just pray that you would help each one of us um, to live with a, a greater degree of boldness for your kingdom and for your gospel, being willing to step away from whatever it is that you call us to, to answer the call of God. And Lord, I just give you praise for that. And thank you, Lord, for this opportunity as we travel around the country. 